Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that we, uh, that we can come here, that you have invited us here, that you've provided this place for us to meet, that you've provided safety for us to meet in, and that you have invited us into your courts. Not only have you told us to come into your courts, you've provided the way and made it possible. We want to thank you for that. We pray this morning, will you keep us from Will you keep us from error, keep me from error? And uh, Father, I, I just pray that uh, you will make this, uh, this time beneficial for us. Yeah, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, today we're going to start with uh, Hudson Taylor, 1832 to 1905. This is roughly 100 years after William Cooper. William Cooper was like 1731 to, to 1800. So 1832 to 1905, Hudson Taylor. Why did I choose Hudson Taylor? Well, I've always been just a little bit curious about China. I've never wanted to go to China, but I've always been a little curious about it. I don't know, anybody see the movie The Sand Pebbles? Anybody old enough to see that movie? It's a Steve McQueen movie uh, that takes place during the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, Amazon Prime for about $4, and it's a good Friday night dinner and a movie. So get a pizza, watch a movie. It's a pretty good movie. Another other movie that intrigued me was 55 Days in Peking, which with Charlton Heston. And like all 1960s movies, there's a huge cheese factor, okay? But it's actually, it's actually a good movie. So... I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it on Netflix, couldn't find it on Amazon Prime, so you're probably going to have to pay for that one. Or or keep your eye on American movie classics, see if it comes out there. I've also been kind of curious about the Chinese in the American West, and uh, why were there so many Chinese in the American West? Uh, the Opium Wars, what, what went on there? Why did, why did England... Uh, why did they possess Hong Kong and Shanghai, Chinese two largest har harbors? How did that come about? And then there was the uh, Boxer Rebellion. Just kind of curious about what the Boxer Rebellion was. Today we're going to talk about Hudson Taylor, who was the founder of the China Inland Mission. As I got to thinking this over, uh, everybody talks about Hudson Taylor. It's really about Hudson Taylor and his wife and a handful of missionaries who went into Antolin, China. And as this story develops, I'd, I hope we, we see that. <clears throat> a little background. Um, England, if, if we have a little background. There we go. England came into China in about 1625. Portugal was already there. There was a plum to be picked, China. And... Uh, so to put that in kind of some perspective, a little context, a little framework, what was going on in 1625? In uh, 1620, in 1620, the Mayflower landed at Plymouth Rock. So this is that time when exploring is beginning to take place. People are getting interested in expanding and colonizing the world. Uh, what famous English writer died in 1621? 
in two weeks. Shakespeare, William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare died in 1621. What famous book was published in 1611? King James Bible. Okay, for extra credit, what English, famous English theologian was born in 1616? John Owen. That's when John Owen was born. So, it's quite a century. The 17th century is quite a century. So, uh, uh, probably wouldn't want to relive it, but, but it was, a lot was going on. Well, by the 1800s, uh, England and China had, had really developed uh, their trade. The largest economy in the world was China's. The, hot, the largest GDP in the world was Britain's. We, they were followed by the United States and then by China. China was the third largest GDP in the world. They had silk, porcelain, and tea, um, <coughs> which England wanted. Uh, England said, is there anything that you want of ours? And China said, no, we don't think so. And they said, well, we've got textile mills here, too. We can send you our textiles. That's what we're known for is our textile mills. China says, no, nah, we'll just wear this old silk stuff. We're okay. So what they, what they created was a trade imbalance. When you have two nations, one nation has a natural resource that this nation wants. This nation has a natural resource that this nation wants. They trade those resources. But when this nation has all the resources and this nation doesn't, you have a trade imbalance. And that means this nation is going to have to bring cash. And that's what England had to do. They had to bring cash. And China was on the silver standard and, and England was on the gold standard. China said, we have to have silver. If you want our silk, you've got to bring silver. So, I, so England was having to take its gold to Europe and trade it for silver and and, and, and Europe was charging them a fee, and this was cutting into their profits. So, so uh, England is not having a good time. They're not enjoying this relationship. Enter the British East India Company to the rescue. The British East India Company controlled all of Southeast India, which was a prime place to grow opium poppy. And they would grow this opium poppy, and then they would hire these smugglers to take it from India around to China. There were plenty of unscrupulous people in China who were just uh, saying, hey, I could be a drug lord here. And that's what happened. And what was happening was that, just like the United States today, the southern part of China was becoming addicted to opium. Now, opium was already uh, illegal in China. And... Uh, but this problem made it kind of acute. So the emperor uh, got him a force together, and he said, uh, so I want you to go out and destroy all these opium caches that are out there. So they did. They were very good at it, and they did. They were getting really effective at destroying opium caches. So, so China said, our country is becoming addicted. We're going to clamp down on this, and Britain says, no, you can't do that. And that was the Opium Wars. And there were two Opium Wars. There was 1839 to 1842, and then again 1856 to 1861. A uh, Chinese war junk against a British warship. Uh, someone said it was like a Sopwith camel against an F-16. It just wasn't going to work. So the Chinese lost the Opium Wars, 
Britain was able to force its hand, we're going to sell opium in your country. And does, is all this sounding familiar, by the way? And uh, <clears throat> this is where a couple of things that got ceded from China to Britain in the opium wars were their two best harbors, Hong Kong and Shanghai. From 1850 to 1864, you had this thing called the Taiping Rebellion. I think it came about from uh, uh, people who were dissatisfied with the concessions that were made during the Opium Wars. And uh, I think the Qing Dynasty, Q-U-I-N-G, I think they were kind of a weak, uh, some weak leaders in there. And uh, uh, so the people in this area known as Taiping, there was a guy named Hong, and he actually... He was more of an opportunist than he was out for the people. And he started using Christian vocabulary to, to get this revolution going. And uh, there was even talk that possibly Christianity was catching hold in China. It turned out just to be this, this cultic leader, Hong. Uh, the, the Taiping Rebellion went on for 14 years. They estimate that between 20 and 70 million deaths occurred as a result of the Taiping Rebellion. So some say 20, some say 70. To put that little framework, the population of the state of Texas is 29 million. So the entire state of Texas wiped out in the Taiping Rebellion. Just an aside here, it wasn't very significant uh, in one respect, was the Sino-French War. This was a war, a small war between China and France. and uh, one thing it served to do was to strengthen the position of this empress. She was called the Empress Dowager, and I think it's pronounced Cixi, C-I-X-I. And uh, she was going to be the empress at the time of the Boxer Rebellion, and she was more, again, just a political opportunist. Uh, the reason I brought this up was this right here is where the Chinese or the French moved into Vietnam started moving into Vietnam, which did not go well over the next, <clears throat> over the next hundred years. Um, the other thing was the American West. Why were there so many Chinese in the American West? Well, there first was there was a gold rush in, China, in uh, California. What, was, what year was that? 1849. Took a guy from California to know that because he... He roots for San Francisco. He doesn't, he doesn't root for the... <laughs> yeah, he was there. Exactly. Another reason you had all these Chinese in the American West is they were trying to escape the Taiping Rebellion. They, were, they, they wasn't safe to stay in China. You know, a sad thing, I wanted to mention this, a sad thing about the, the uh, Taiping Rebellion is that the people who lived in that area were called Hakka, H-A-K-K-A, and the reason they were living in that area was they had moved there to escape Genghis Khan. And so they, they later experienced the Taiping Rebellion. <clears throat> the Transcontinental Railroad was built between, from 1863 to 1869. There were, uh, there were uh, I think, like three big railroad companies in California there was a, a guy named Crocker, a guy named Stanford, and uh, I don't, don't, don't even know the other guy's name. 
but I, I think it was Crocker who had a, a butler. They couldn't find people to work on this railroad. They're going to build the western half of this railroad. The other guys are coming from the east. And there was an opportunity here to make a lot of money, but they can't find anybody to go to work for them. And uh, this one story I saw was that, uh, the, I believe it was Crocker had a Chinese butler. And he said, I know some people who are looking for work. And uh, so they hired all these Chinese to build the Transcontinental Railroad from the west. The Chinese laid more track in one day than I think anybody before them or maybe after them. And uh, they were extremely hard workers. They worked for lower wages than, uh, than others would. And uh, I just if you're ever reading about the Transcontinental Railroad, what little I've read about it, that was some dangerous work. That was some dangerous work. What happened was that after they got the railroad built, they didn't need all those people. So what did they do? They laid them off. There was a huge layoff. They just laid off all these Chinese workers. And suddenly the American West is saturated in unemployed Chinese workers. There came a point uh, where it became illegal to hire a Chinese worker. Congress passed the Exclusion Act of 1882. Uh, making it illegal for Chinese to immigrate into the United States. And uh, at one point in Seattle, they loaded a bunch of Chinese people up on a boat and sent them out to sea and said, we don't care where you go, but you can't stay here. And so it was a, a tough century to be Chinese. That's where we get the expression, you don't stand a Chinaman's chance. It's one of those old expressions that only old people have heard that, that young people may never have heard. And I got to thinking, this is a rough period for the Chinese, but I can't think of a period that has not been a rough period for the Chinese. And uh, so it's just another example. And then in 1900, we had the Boxer Rebellion. We're going to come back to the Boxer Rebellion in a little bit and, uh, and talk about it. Right now, we're going to talk about Hudson Taylor, who lived from 1832 to 1905. So in the midst of all this stuff that's going on, in the midst of just, just about the time the Taiping Rebellion is coming to an end, uh, the Opium Wars have been fought, uh, Hudson Taylor and a group and his wife and a group of faithful people are going to take the gospel into inland China. Hudson Taylor was born in 1832. He studied rudimentary medicine. He, he was not, I don't think, ever just an all-out doctor, but he studied rudimentary medicine and, uh, and even studied midwifery at a point so he could deliver babies. Uh, he learned several varieties of Chinese. One thing he did is he couldn't afford Chinese lessons, so he, he came across a portion of the New Testament written in Chinese, and this is how he got started. He used that as his Rosetta Stone to start learning Chinese. <laughs> and uh, he learned uh, several varieties of Chinese. He helped to develop part of the New Testament in the Wu dialect, which I think is the dialect spoken in southern China. He, uh, he is the person credited with founding the China Inland Ministries, which is now the Overseas Missionary Fellowship International. He's, his work spanned about 51 years uh, in China and, and in and out of China. 
I think at the end of the century, it was there were 800 missionaries, 125 schools, 300 missionary stations in all 18 provinces of China. Um, at the end of the century of the of the 19th century, there were about 25,000 converts, is what they were counting. Today in China, it's estimated there are 150 million Christians. He grew up in a devout Methodist home. His father was a pharmacist. He, uh, he was also a lay preacher, and, uh, but Hudson's coming up to about 17 years old. He doesn't consider himself a Christian. Uh, one day he was looking for something to read, and he dumped out a basket full of gospel tracts that his dad had. And one of the gospel tracts he picked up, the one he decided to read, was the finished work of Christ. And it said, a full and perfect atonement and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. He said, there was nothing to be done but to fall down on my knees and accept the Savior and his salvation and praise him forever. Well, it turns out that afternoon that his mom had locked him herself in a bedroom. She was in another town, and uh, she felt this burden. She went into a bedroom, locked the door, and so I'm going to pray till my son accepts Christ. Uh, that all happened in the same afternoon. <clears throat> he never, he, he may, I don't know that he was ever associated with the Methodist Church. He, he liked what was coming out of Ireland. It was a thing called the Open Brethren, or the Plymouth Brethren, who uh, were trying to be non-denominational. And, uh, some of the famous people in the Plymouth Brethren were F.F. F. Bruce and George Mueller, a guy named Harry Ironside. Anybody here know who Harry Ironside was? He was, a, he was the, uh, the pastor at the Moody Church in Chicago from 1929 to 1948. And then the novelist Ken Follett is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Ken Follett. I think he writes like thriller novels. And... Uh, Roxanne's read all of them. So, <laughs> have you read any Ken Follett? Is that right? That's like thriller stuff, or Ken? It's what? I don't know. Which one? Pillars of the Earth. Yeah. So historical fiction. Switching. Okay. Okay. All right, it's Ken Follett. Put that on your list, on your reading list. Yeah. <clears throat> in 1852, he went to study medicine. Starts preparing. He's beginning, I think, to have a heart for China. That was something he had read, and he, he starts preparing for this ministry. Uh, and in 1854, he goes to China with the uh, China Evangelization Society. You'll notice that the English misspelled the word evangelization. And uh, but that's how they spelled it. So, uh, Well, he, was, uh, he went to Shanghai. <clears throat> he had, before he went, he had done a lot of work in England in poor, in poor areas. He, he had a, seemed to have a heart for the poor. And so he went and practiced a lot of his medicine in these poor areas. Then he went to China. He was in Shanghai. While he was in Shanghai, he, uh, uh, he did about 18 ministry tours 
in and out of Shanghai. He was not he was not well received. Part of the deal was I mean he was from from the West, and he wore a black overcoat, and he learned that people were referring to him as the Black Devil, and uh, <clears throat> he came back from one trip. Uh, and his medical supplies had burned in the storage, the warehouse where he kept his medical supplies had burned. So he lost all his medical supplies. But the fact that he was being referred to as the, as the black devil, he, start, he adopted Chinese dress. He started dressing as the Chinese dress, even to the point of growing a, a queue. And uh, this was uh, kind of frowned on, I think. It would be like if somebody said, I'm going to go minister to the American Indian, and they go to an area where there's these American Indians living, and they start dressing like the Indians and living like the Indians, you know, you might step back and say, wait a minute, where are you going with this? And I think that's what was going on here, uh, especially when the women join him later. Uh, it's, it's kind of scandalous that the women are dressing like the Chinese women. He left the China Evangelization Society and he went, started working with the English Presbyterian Mission. So just, just so you know, just stop and think about it. It's not like Hudson Taylor was the pioneer missionary who went into China. There are already missionaries there. And Bobby was telling us a couple of weeks ago that the Presbyterians were actually at the front of the charge. They had more missionaries there than anybody. And it's always the Presbyterians who get accused of not being missionary-oriented. So I think that's interesting. So here's the English Presbyterian mission. In 1856, he was out on, on some travels, and he was robbed of almost everything he owned. Uh, in 1857, he left the, the, uh, the Presbyterian mission. I think it was then they were borrowing money to... to uh, do what they needed to do. And he decided it was wrong to borrow money to fulfill the Lord's work. It was like you were saying to the Lord, you're not going to supply what I need, so I'm going to have to borrow this money. And uh, he felt there was a contradiction there. So he and a man named John Jones and uh, four Chinese nationals started a mission. They called it the Ningbo Mission. That was the town they were in, the Ningbo Mission. And they started doing their own thing. About 1858, <clears throat> so what's going on in 1858 there in China? Taiping Rebellion is right in the heat of it. Uh, he's in, there in Ningbo. Uh, he meets a, a young girl named Maria Dyer. Her, her father had been a, a, a missionary, Reverend Samuel Dyer. He had worked with the London Mission Society, and Maria Dyer was orphaned. Her parents had died. And so she was working with the girls' school there in, in Ningbo, and uh, uh, she and Hudson Taylor got married. They adopted a Chinese boy who they uh, uh, took care of, and they, they had a baby who died at childbirth, and then they had uh, Grace, their first surviving child, a little girl named Grace. And they assumed the operations at the Ningbo Hospital. In 1860, Hudson Taylor, so a couple years later, Hudson Taylor had hepatitis. He was going to have to go back to England. 
And so he and Maria went back to England. One thing you want to keep in mind about these voyages they make is it takes about four to five months to get from China around the south end of Africa back up to England. And then from England back to China, four or five months. On one of these voyages, I can't remember which one it was, they, they, they went through two typhoons. And these, these were sailing ships, you know. <laughs> so um, I, uh, it, uh, John Piper said he calculated that they spent about six years on the water. So, so and, that, and, that's, uh, and I, I agree with Piper. Um, next time you're sitting in an airport, Got a four-hour layover. You know, kind of keep that in mind. I always think about that too, because when I'm sitting in an airport and I have a four-hour layover, I do, all I have to do is think of a 61 Galaxy with all four windows rolled down, and <laughs> driving from Tucumcari to Amarillo in the middle of the afternoon. So I go, this ain't bad. <laughs> I'm enjoying this. <clears throat> So they go back to England, and uh, did I get it there? Oh, man, I forgot a slide. Oh, no, that's where I need to be, right there. Okay. He goes back to England, and in England, he uh, works with a, a group called the Ch Church Mission Society. And uh, I've, I've got it wrong somewhere. It's either the China Mission Society or the Church Mission Society. Um. In 1862, he writes a book. I think maybe Maria helped him with this, called China's Spiritual Need and Claims. And uh, uh, this book, uh, actually some people read this book and decided to become missionaries to China because of the book that, that they wrote. In 1865, he is in a place called Brighton. I think it's in the south end of England. And he sees... He says he sees a thousand people in their security praising God uh, for his work in their lives. And, and what, all he can think of is all the people in China who uh, cannot pray their prayer. So he asked God for 24 missionaries, and uh, <clears throat> uh, he wants, uh, I guess maybe he was thinking 12 provinces that he needed to go to. He wanted two missionaries in each province. God gave him 16 missionaries. And so in 1865, they established the China Inland Mission. mission uh, and uh, 16 missionaries plus Maria and, and, uh, and uh, Hudson and their kids take off on a four or five month voyage to China. I think this may be the one where they did the two typhoons. <clears throat> uh, the rules were these. You, you, you had to, Taylor, Taylor would settle all disputes. He was the authority. He would settle all disputes. You had to adopt Chinese dress and culture, including men had to wear a queue. You had to do everything on free will offering, and there would be no solicitation. And, the, and there would be no expenditure beyond what was received. I've, I've read two different places. One said that one of the missionaries accused him of tyranny, uh, had to be dismissed. Um, 
if something's not a good fit, it's good to figure that out early. And uh, others, uh, another thing I read was that others had accused him of tyranny. And uh, I, I think we maybe stop and think, uh, it doesn't do us any good to soft soap uh, history. And I suspect these accusations were not made in a vacuum. That they're, they're probably they have a strong personality who says, we're going to do it this way, and uh, this is how I want it done. And, it, and it's probably, probably some truth to it. <clears throat> uh, remember, we're talking about a man. And, uh, and so. So what's going on in 1865? What, just a little framework here, kind of keep this thing going. So the American Civil War was fought from 1861 to 1865. So while America is fighting a civil war over in England, uh, Hudson Taylor is getting ready to go to China. Transcontinental Railroad was built 1863 to 69. I think it's interesting that the Transcontinental Railroad was built during the Civil War. Um, apparently there were parts of the country where maybe you didn't have to answer the call. And so you're able to go work on a railroad. Do it. East. I see. Okay. Oh, I see. Okay. So get the gold east on a northern route so you don't have to go through the south. And, uh, okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. Did somebody, did you say something? Gold and silver. Okay. 1867, Grace died of meningitis. She was about nine years old. So uh, you're going to see a lot of this. In 1868, they were in a town called Yangtze. There was a French Roman Catholic who was running an orphan in Yangtze. He had all these children in that orphanage. Well, naturally, some of those children are going to die. And somehow the rumor got started that these Christians were killing these children to make medicine out of them. And so uh, one day a riot broke out. It's called the Yangtze Riot. And uh, Hudson Taylor and another man were stoned. And I think others were injured. They were not, uh, they were not, uh, nobody died, but there were injuries. People had to run for their lives. At one point, Hudson Taylor, I think maybe this other guy, ran into this building. They run into this building, and they say, save life, save life. And when the authorities heard that expression, the Chinese law said they had to take action and go quell this riot. So eventually the riot got quelled, and then after it was over, the man who was in charge of quelling the riot said, oh, by the way, what are you doing with the children? So... Um, you're in a place that is loaded with superstition and distrust and, and you're a white man and uh, you're from a country they don't especially like who has imposed its will on your country and uh, that, that's and, and, and Hudson Taylor is trying to present the gospel <clears throat> in 1869 he comes across a crisis in his life Piper calls it his uh, temptations and failures in holiness. I think maybe Taylor was beginning to ask, uh, 
how come I have all this sin in my life? Or why, why are things not going better? What's going on here? What am I doing wrong? Um, and and I, I think it's too, uh, something just I want to pass on to you. It, I learned this one time of all places in the Boy Scouts, working as an adult leader in the Boy Scouts. It seemed like every camp out we went on, there was some kind of hassle. Saying, we're just, why are we having all these hassles? And I finally figured out, well, they're supposed to happen. Life is not hassle-free. And when we used to go to, when Seth and Susie used to take that group to Mexico, I went with them just a few times. Every time we got to the border, there was some kind of hassle. Every time. And um, I, I just think that God just kind of puts those hassles there to say, this isn't your doing. So, uh, but he came across these temptations and failures. He wrote a letter to his mother. And in that letter, he says, I'm envied by some, despised by many, hated by others, often blamed for things I never heard of or had nothing to do with. And But the battle is the Lord's, and he will conquer. He had read a book called Christ is All by Henry by Henry Law, who talked about continually abiding in Christ. And he wrote, read another book called How to Live on Christ by Harriet Beecher Stowe. What else did Harriet Beecher Stowe write? Uncle Tom's Cabin, okay. In that book, she talks about surrender. There must be a full concentration of the thoughts and affections on Christ, a complete surrender of the whole being to him, constant looking to him for grace and he received a letter from a friend of his there in China I'm guessing another missionary a guy named John McCarthy <clears throat> who wrote in this letter but how to get faith strengthened not by striving after faith but by resting on the faithful one at that time <clears throat> there were a couple of people Robert Pearsall Smith and his wife Hannah Whitehall Smith uh, they were involved in a thing called the Keswick Movement. This started in a town called Keswick, spelled Keswick, pronounced Keswick, okay? And uh, so it's, remember, Cooper, spelled Cowper, pronounced Cooper. Dunny, pronounced Dunn, I mean, spelled Dunn, pronounced Dunny. Keswick, pr pronounced Keswick. And Evangelation. Evangelization is just misspelled. <laughs> Smith had been writing in a magazine called Revival Magazine. He talked about the victorious life and the higher life. Um, the Keswick movement, if I got this right, says that when you are justified, you don't have the spirit yet. You have not been anointed with the spirit. So you can live like this the rest of your life, or at some point in your life you can come to a point where you say, I want to be anointed by the Spirit, and you become anointed by the Spirit, you become Spirit-filled, and you move on to this higher life, this victorious life. And when you hear people talking about the higher life or the victorious life or being Spirit-filled, this is probably where they're coming from. It sets up two categories of Christians. You have the justified and, and, and because they're not spirit-filled, uh, they might be carnal Christians. This is where you get the carnal Christian. 
and uh, uh, then you have those who are spirit-filled, so they've moved on to this higher life. Um, every time you look up something on the Keswick movement, you're going to see Hudson Taylor's name. And when you read about Hudson Taylor, you're going to see something about the Keswick movement. And his daughter, one of his daughters, after she was an adult, she and her husband wrote a book called The Spiritual Secret of Hudson Taylor. I haven't read that book, so I can't say much, but um, there are probably different parts points on the spectrum of the Keswick movement. And, uh, and Taylor, whether he was actually into the Keswick movement or just influenced by the Keswick movement, but he, was probably, he probably was definitely heavily influenced by the Keswick, by the Keswick movement. Recently, I uh, don't know if you noticed this name, Andrew Nacelli. You remember when Blake did a book on conscience? It was written by Andrew Nacelli. He's kind of an up-and-coming Christian writer. He has recently written a book called No Quick Fix, where higher life theology came from, what it is, and why it's harmful. We're told, uh, you know, Jesus told the lady at the well in Samaria, uh, I will give you living water. We're told in John 7, this this living water is the spirit which is given to all believers. So if you're justified, you have the spirit. It's not like you're going to have a second anointing. I do, uh, Piper thinks what actually happened with Taylor is that he had a moment of crisis and he had a new realization that this is Christ's work and not my work. And he, and he feels that rather than having a a, uh, a, you know, the, the Keswick crisis that Taylor actually just had that experience uh, <clears throat> where he is, at, at, it, and we probably don't need to go into detail about it. 1870, a bad year. They sent, uh, they sent their three surviving children, Bertie, Freddie, and Maria, back to England. When I first read that, I thought, okay, two weeks ago, we're talking about a man who put his son into a boarding school where the son was abused. Today, we're giving Hudson Taylor a pass because he sent his kids on a four-month voyage back to England. A uh, big difference here, I think, is uh, that uh, they, there was a lady who had worked with them from the beginning, who they knew, and she was going to make this voyage with the kids. And... Uh, and so they knew the kids were in good hands. They weren't just abandoning their kids to a boarding school. The other is, I think maybe they had decided we need to get our kids out of England, out of China. They'll all die if they stay here in China because that's exactly what was happening. They had a son named Samuel who had already died by 1870. In 1870, uh, Maria had another baby, Noel, who survived birth. But Maria was sick at this time, and she wasn't able to nurse the baby, and the baby died of malnutrition. And then, and then Maria died. Um, the official cause of death is cholera. I saw something that maybe it was something besides cholera, but that's what they said, is that she had died from cholera. Uh, she was 33 years old. Hudson Taylor was 38. 
So between uh, <clears throat> between 1866 and 1870, all this happened. Uh, four years in China. In 1871, he decided he needed to go back to England, so he went back to England. Uh, and, and there's something I want to say here. This is, you have a strong personality at the head of an organization. Very often, what happens, I think most of the time, what happens is when you have a strong leader of a strong organization, when that strong leader sits down, the organization sits down. I, I think what we need, this is something I didn't think about until this morning. I was thinking this over. The reason it worked for Hudson Taylor to go back to England is that these missionaries who were still in China did not sit down. So I, I think this is more of a story not of Hudson Taylor, but a, a story of Hudson Taylor and his wife and 16 missionaries in um, the China Inland Mission. While he was in England, he married a lady named Jenny Folding. They were married for 33 years. They had one son and one daughter. The three children who they sent back to England, all three of those children, when they grew up, worked in the China Inland Mission. Um, Jenny apparently stayed in England. And uh, so between 1881 and 1890, those nine years right there, Hudson made two voyages to China. And uh, so they were apart for six years. They had six years of separation in that 33. An interesting thing happened in 1885. There were six students at Cambridge and a seventh student from another university who decided they wanted to work with the China Inland Mission. And so they went to China. And uh, the China Inland Mission had been kind of an obscure mission up to that point. These, this, these guys are known as the Cambridge Seven. They... Uh, I guess breathed probably some new energy into the organization and, uh, and brought, uh, brought China Inland Mission up to the limelight and became a, a well-known mission after that. 1900, the Boxer Rebellion. I kind of I myself, uh, when I look at the Boxer Rebellion, uh, they had had some floods in this one area of China that had some natural disasters. And they decided that the gods uh, were telling them, look, you've lost, you're losing control of your country. You have all these foreigners who were here. And uh, you've let all these foreigners propagate Christianity all over the country. And, and so we're bringing these floods and natural disasters on you. There was a, I think this may have been a secret group. They met in, I think, a martial arts club. And uh, they did these exercises, uh, which I think might have been like katas or something, uh, martial arts exercises. They said it looked like they were shadow boxing, so they called them boxers. And uh, they decided to revolt against what was going on. And uh, by the, by the way, if you're... If you're surfing YouTube right now to get those exercises, they didn't work. So, <laughs> so to, <clears throat> but they would go through the country killing Christian missionaries and killing Chinese Christians. So here's where uh, some nationalism went bad. Uh, you could understand their frustration 
with, with other countries coming in telling them how to run their country. Uh, in, and so the, this was called the Boxer Rebellion. They, uh, where the movie 55 Days in Peking came from is there was an area of China, of, of oh, not, not China, of Peking, there was an area of Peking that was known as the foreign area. That's where all the foreigners were living, conducting all this commerce. And uh, the boxers showed up and, and besieged that area for 55 days. Well, the, the empress dowager wasn't going to do anything about it. She was going to sit back and see how things shook out because she's trying to solidify her power. And uh, so a... Uh, uh, a, a multi-nation force shows up. It was it was England, and the United States, and Germany, and France, and the Dutch. Even I think got involved. They showed up and they put down that rebellion. And these people are inside this building. They're desperate. They're about to die. And this contingency, this international contingency, shows up and puts down the rebellion. In the Boxer Rebellion, the China Inland Mission suffered worse than any other missionary group. 58 adults died and 21 children. Some of, uh, some of the countries, I think especially the U.S. And, and, and Britain, said we want reparations for this, for everything that all these people lost. And so China had to pay reparations. They went to the China Inland Mission and offered reparations, and the China Inland Mission said, we don't want them. So, uh, and I think that's, that's pretty special. They, they stepped up. Uh, you know, I, I, one thing I see here is just this consistent example from the China Inland Mission, and consistent living. This is how the Lord wants us to live, and that's how they lived. 1902, he and Jenny were in um, were in Switzerland. Jenny was dying of cancer, and uh, Hudson Taylor's health was failing, and so he stepped down as the director of the CIM. Uh, and he handed it over to a man named Host, who had been one of the original missionaries. And so this group had stayed together all these years. Um. <clears throat> And then in, uh, Jenny died. They buried her there in Switzerland. Hudson made one last trip back to China and uh, to check on things, and he was going around checking on things uh, when he suddenly died. It didn't say what he died from. His grave, uh, he was buried there in China. It took five months to get him back to England, so they, they just buried him there in China. Um, Beside, they buried him beside Maria in China. Something I hadn't thought about was I think Vietnam might have been the first war where we flew all our dead home up to that point. You know, how, many, how many American people are buried on foreign soil? And, and same here. It was just made sense to bury him in China. The building was covered, I mean, the cemetery was covered up by a building during the Cultural Revolution. But I read recently that uh, that building has been torn down and now you can visit the grave of Hudson Taylor again. 
So the, the English cemetery has been has been exposed again. So that's the story of Hudson Taylor and a handful of of uh, missionaries, faithful missionaries, who took the gospel. This uh, this one thing I intended to cover and didn't. Um, it was trendy. I mean, where are all your big population centers? They're on the coast. That's where all the money is. In any country you look at, that's where all the money is. It's on the coast. And uh, and that's where all the big population is. And if you're a missionary going to China, the easiest thing to do is to stay in those big cities. And uh, it's dangerous to go into the interior, especially then. And uh, uh, Taylor said, I want to uh, I want to go to the interior. There are plenty of missionaries out on, on the coast. I want to go to the interior. He suffered some depression during his life because he knew that all the work they had done, I mean you look at you look at what he went through, the hardships that they went through, but but he uh, said all the work we've done, four hundred million people are still unreached. And uh um, so, uh, it was, uh, you just have to, you really need to sit back and think about these people who, uh, her felt like they were being called to go to the mission field and they went, uh, to a dangerous place where their children were going to die and, uh, presented the gospel. I don't know. Uh, I, I really don't know how they viewed death of children in those days. It wasn't unusual. A high mortality rate among your children wasn't unusual. But I think it's sad uh, that uh, they did lose these children and, and, and that Maria died at such a young age. If they had lived in England, I suspect that things would have been different. So, I want to want to talk to you real quick about something. Uh, it goes kind of counter to what we've been talking about, but uh, <clears throat> Piper says this in his book. He says we all need more faith, more joy, more peace, more love. But he but he he leaves there and he says. Maybe reading about Hudson Taylor will cause you to launch into some venture, some dream of ministry beyond all your real or perceived inadequacies. And uh, and being the, I mean, you guys know me, so so I I I want to take a little umbrage with that. <clears throat> that that. Piper is saying you can use this story to launch into some venture, some dream of ministry beyond all your real or perceived inadequacies. Um, not everybody is Hudson Taylor. Not everybody is the head. Not everybody is the foot. Not everybody is Hudson Taylor. Not everybody's being called to the mission field. You don't need Christ any more than Hudson Taylor needed Christ. Hudson Taylor's not more spiritual than you are. Hudson Taylor hasn't received some special anointing that you haven't received. Um, he did a wonderful work. He and the people with him and his wife 
I just think about it. Uh, your wife has to be in your corner, and she was there the whole time. And uh, uh, so this story, I, again, I don't think so much about Hudson Taylor. It's about the people who are around Hudson Taylor. It's about the people who did not sit down when Hudson Taylor left. <clears throat> I don't know if you noticed this, but the leadership in this church is has a lot of gray hair. It's been a concern of ours. We, I was, I was sitting. We were sitting here, fifteen years ago, looking at this church, going, "Is this church just going to die?" And we now have a church full of young people and young children. Uh, it's going to be very important that as as those of us with gray hair are coming to the end of our lives, that that you don't sit down, that this organization not sit down when that happens, and. Uh, uh, we need new leaders. We need new leaders here, people to pick up the torch and run with it. Just like in the China Inland Missionary Mission, it did not end when Hudson Taylor died. And I, th I think that's, I mean, that's just great. It, and, and the Lord has provided there. He provided people to take it. The Lord has provided things in this church. We, there wasn't anything we could do about it and look at what has happened in our church because the Lord has provided it. <clears throat> Several years ago, David Platt wrote this book. It's called Radical. And Platt says in here, it's easy for American Christians to forget how Jesus and his followers would actually live, what their new lifestyle would look like. They would, he said, leave behind security, money, convenience, even family for him. They would abandon everything for the gospel. They would take up their crosses daily. <clears throat> so this book came out. Do you remember this book? Ordinary by Michael Horton. It was a rebuttal to this book. I didn't realize that when we were reading this book, but this book is a rebuttal to this book. This book says... Your life was meant to be ordinary, not radical. Restless, epic, crazy, extreme. Every word we read these days seems to call us to the next big thing. If only we would change our comfortable, compromising lives. That was Horton's point in this book. My, my complaint, you know, I griped about this book the whole time we were using it. My complaint was that clear writing... Uh, Clear writing expresses clear thinking, is the way I heard that put one time. And this book is not clear writing. And half the time we couldn't figure out what it was talking about. And uh, I, I think if this book were edited and rewritten, it would be a great book. Because I come down on this side, ordinary. And uh, um, so I want to bring something up to you real quick, because as we as we study the lives of these men and these these men they're the big names in in christianity we get to feeling how come i'm not like that and and just real quick i want to i want to show you this book for the past several months the men's saturday morning group has been reading this book it's a book that men don't normally read it's called how people change and and men like to read adventure stories and uh this book right here the first example in this book is about a man who has an enviable theology library, and uh, at church everything is great, but when he goes home he's nasty to his wife and he's nasty to his family. And uh, 
So then they go from that example right there into talking about transformed hearts and the first three commandments. And, I, and as I'm reading this book, I'm going, oh, wait a minute, I thought we were going to talk about this guy that was nasty to his family. And what they, and what they wind up doing is they spend a whole book talking about me. And uh, <laughs> it, I, I just want to caution us that as we read the lives of these people, don't start feeling bad that you're not one of those people. This is where the battle is right here. This is where the battle is. If you haven't read this book, I really recommend it. It's a good read. And uh, But this is where the battle is. Just ordinary, everyday stuff that we do. Ordinary, everyday stuff that we do. This is where the battlefield is. And I want to mention a couple of things real quick. So this is where the battle is. So this is inside your home. This is inside your church. This is at your workplace. That's where the battle is. Are you, are you, uh, do you have that enviable, I mean, what good does it do to have the enviable theological library if you're nasty to all the people around you? This is where the battle is. So don't go trying to be Hudson Taylor. Take care of this right here. Take care of it inside your home. I want to say another couple things real quick. We're on a mission field. We're on a mission field. Give you a quick example. Let's say you're an English teacher in a high school full of at-risk kids. Those kids aren't used to seeing people who care for them. They may not have a lot of that in their experience. Suddenly, they have an English teacher who cares. They notice that. They see that. You're living Christ in front of those people. Um, every time we went to a hospital, we ran into Kelly's students. Kelly and her cohorts were filling Emerald Hospitals with nurses. And uh, that is needed. We need nurses. So, so don't, don't take these examples of, of great Christian men and say, well, that's what I need to be doing. Take lessons from it. Definitely take lessons from it. Be concerned for the people of China, especially today. They're being persecuted. Christians in China have always been persecuted, being persecuted today. And pray for them and, uh, and, and get involved where you can, but don't feel like you have to quit your job and go become a missionary. If you are, though, interested in some overt missionary work, if it say some Friday morning you wake up and you say, you know, I feel a need to prepare dinner for 10 or 12 people. I just don't know where to take that dinner once I get it made. Every Friday, Roxanne goes out to East Ridge and she picks up eight little girls and brings them back to their house. And she and Dennis have dinner with these little girls. Then they have a Bible study and then they take all the little girls home. If you wanted to help, talk to Roxanne and Dennis 
uh, but they could always use somebody to help with that dinner. If you know, as some simple, ordinary little thing you can do to help eight little girls. And these are eight little girls who don't get the gospel. Most of them don't. They're certainly not getting the gospel in their homes. And Randy and Jennifer, uh, we were talking to them last week, this past week, and they uh, they are getting ready to start a teaching series. And they're going to be looking for some teachers. So if you think you might like to get involved in that, talk to Randy and Jennifer. And there's always something in Easter Ridge to be done. Those things are out there. Those things are all around us. They're ordinary. They're ordinary. They're not flashy at all. But, the, you know, when you stop to think about it, China Inland Mission was not flashy either. It was just people on the ground working themselves to death. That's it. That's all we got. <clears throat> Thanks.